Welcome to Talking Beats. I hope you'll subscribe and give us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash talkingbeats. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash talkingbeats. We believe now more than ever in providing a platform for individuality, free thought, and a diverse range of views. By supporting the show this way, you'll get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, and much more. And remember, the conversation is always active at Talking Beats Podcast on social media. On today's program, we're speaking with former CIA clandestine officer John Seifer. He spent 28 years in the CIA, and at the time of his retirement, he was a member the CIA's Senior Intelligence Service, the leadership team that guides CIA activities globally. His writings have been published in Lawfare, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Politico, Newsweek, and Just Security, and he can be regularly seen on the PBS NewsHour, BBC, and CNN. He has significant experience working with foreign and domestic partners to solve national security challenges. John Cipher, clandestine spy. These are all sexy words. The CIA has a pretty sexy sound to it. Uh, you spent 28 years there. Uh, how sexy is it? <laughs> it's not always had a sexy connotation, but uh, yeah, the, you know, in terms of spy and espionage and stuff, there's always intrigue with it. And I think there's always intrigue with things that are secret because people can can create a fiction around things that are secret and they can either be it can go to the bad side of conspiratorial and crazy, or it can, or it can uh, go to the other side where people think that you know people are taking advantage of the process. It was it's it was a wonderful career because it's about people and it's about cultures and it's about travel and it's about being involved in in national security for your country. So, um, you know, it was, it was a wonderful place. It was very professional. It was you know had excellent friends and I got to travel around the world and and sort of inculcate myself into foreign cultures. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a bad gig. Okay, you brought up a couple of things I wanted to get to later, but we're going to go to them right now. You <laughs> talk, Before you've talked about education, about the sort of cultural education you get by working in another country, another region, almost like uh, you get a new master's degree each time you do it. I wonder how much carryover is there country to country, region to region? This is a way of asking, how similar are people? That's an interesting question. Um, I think people are quite similar and have many of the same you know, needs and interests, as long as you're respective of their differences or what are the, what are the cultural differences. And so if you're going to go to Japan or whether you're going to go to Indonesia or Colombia, it, it, it takes an effort to understand their history and their politics and their culture and respect those things so that you can develop friendships with people there because in its simplest sense, you know, the spy work is meeting and developing relationships with people and figuring out what motivates them because there's a small subset of people who have access to information and secrets that the U S government wants or needs. And if they have motivations and willingness to share those things, you want to be able to have built trust and understand that person so that they might be able to, you know, spy for us. And of course, most people don't want to, but you have to be willing to put in the front effort to to meet those people and, and show respect to them and, and learn about their cultures. So yeah, people are, are all the same in a sense. 
you know, at its coldest, if you're looking at espionage, it's about, you know, looking at those things that all of us have, assessing them and manipulating them. So everybody has ego, everybody has needs, everybody, you know, gets angry at their bosses or sometimes at their country or corruption or things. And so you're looking for those things to see if you can take advantage of them for your country. I'm guessing you can't talk about many things in, in great detail, but John Cipher, explain to us how easy is it to trick someone into becoming an asset? Is that the right word, trick, to manipulate? No, in fact, in fact, that's the, you know, people talk about it, and oftentimes it's sort of the, the grist of books and movies of, of, of blackmailing people or tricking them, and that's exactly what you don't want, because essentially, if you have someone who is willing to, you know, I'm using sort of the crude term, spy for the United States, to commit espionage on behalf of, you know, against their own country to help the United States, you want that person to be very aware of what they're doing so they can follow your directions and keep safe. And that you want to know that they're motivated and they have a reason to be doing it so that uh, you're not sort of found later that, that that there was some sort of game going on or they weren't who they say they were. And so you, the one thing you don't want to do is trick people into doing it because then when they figure out that it's a trick, they're they're likely to try to find a way out of it. And it's the same with blackmail. We just don't blackmail or use sex or these kind of things to get people involved in in these relationships because it can backfire on you. You know, you're looking for people that understand what they're doing. They're comfortable with it. They understand the, the ramifications so they can keep themselves safe. And you want them to be able to do it for a long time. You want them to be able to do it um, so it benefits them and it benefits the United States. And, and sometime when it comes time, you, you sort of retire and, and go off to do other things and it, it's kept secret forever. So let's say you find the perfect person someone who can commit you think this person's going to be with us for what is a long time 10 years 15 years i would say, what, what is I mean, a long there, time <laughs> there's some that have been with us for you know decades but but there is sort of a lifespan of, of a relationship because you know at the end of the day it really depends on their access to information the u.s government needs you don't want to to step into these kind of serious relationships unless you know, there's a very very important need that's being met so spying for the United States, which can be very dangerous in most of these countries if you're caught, you don't want to be doing that unless, you know, the benefit is very, very clear and the stakes are very, very clear to everybody. So, you know, a relationship could be very short because there's some information we'd need. And, you know, you know, you could imagine terrorism if somebody came and knew about a terrorist attack and was interested in, who knows, money or what have you. You might meet that person, get to know them, go through that process. And, and when you're when that terrorism attack has been thwarted, maybe that's all that person had access to and you don't need to maintain that relationship. Whereas someone else might be a junior functionary, say in the Iranian government and is working their way up their system and continues to have access to things that the U S government needs for its national security. Then that relationship, you might want to continue, you know, for as long as you can. You didn't grow up thinking to yourself day in and day out, I can't wait till I'm old enough to join the CIA. Uh, can you talk about how, how you came to it? What was it for you as a kid? Did you just fall into it? I know you've had an interest in foreign affairs for many years. What happened? How did it coalesce <laughs> at CIA? Yeah, I was just talking to a young student just recently today, like this morning, and talking about how sort of career decisions are made and you know, and even inside an organization, as you're talking to people about promotions and where they want to be, you know, 
really is, is sort of the best advice is do show a passion and do well at what you're doing now and it will open doors for things later. And so, no, I had no idea about the CIA, um, but my parents were teachers, my father was professor. I was always interested in in politics and in history and, and being involved in sort of the issues of the day and um, learning about others and things like that. And so I studied history in college um, in, in political science and, and some area studies and that type of thing. I was always interested in it. I was from upstate New York, a small town. And so I did a semester in London and that was sort of eye-opening for me to be overseas and travel around Europe and things like that. It sort of made me more interested in doing something related to that. And then I eventually went to graduate school in New York City and in international affairs, had an internship at the State Department over the summer there. They're sort of intelligence arm, which is very analytic and, you know, continued to study back then. It was sort of Soviet studies and arms control and those type of things. So I wanted to do something related, probably government related or think tank related. And as I was, you know, looking for jobs and interviewing, uh, I talked to the CIA and, and was interested sort of in the analytic side of the house. So as you know, there's sort of several big tribes and the two main, two main ones that you often hear about are the the clandestine service or the espionage side of the agency, and then the analytic side, which is sort of like the world's experts on every kind of topic that the U.S. government needs in national security. So experts on, you know, the Iranian missile system and the Chinese Navy and, you know, Egyptian economy and those type of things. And so I thought at that time that I would probably go into the, I wanted to go into the analytic side of the agency and maybe work for a few years and then leave and get a PhD or something like that. And that would mean that would mean sitting at a desk in in, yes, a, in, in Northern Virginia in a big building or something or yeah that's right yeah. I you know I hadn't I, you know wasn't thinking about a career overseas and in fact back then you know dating myself there was much less information on what the what the spy side of the agency did it wasn't something you it was easy to research and understand and so as I was interviewing there was people who were interested in talking to me about the about the director of operations of the clandestine side of the house. And it just didn't feel comfortable with it. So I joined as a, to be an analyst. And it wasn't until I was inside and went through the training and learned about the system and befriended people that I, that I realized that I was interested in maybe make a longer career in, in working in the clandestine side of the house. And because my testing and psychological testing and, and other things said I, was, I had a proclivity for it, I was able to switch over quite early. So I never actually worked as a professional analyst. Could you talk about the psychological testing a little? How much can you how much can you tell me right now? What does what is what does that mean? What are they looking for? Yeah, it's a good question. And I don't know if it's changed since when I came in, but they're sort of, you know, people you have to face the you know, people are very different in a lot of these different organizations. If you're looking at someone who's in their security agency who's going to be, you know, excellent with languages and 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 computers, or an analyst who's going to sort of be willing to dig in really deep on their area of expertise or, you know, someone who's going to be learning languages, living overseas and has a good sense, you know, street sense and common sense and ability to sort of juggle, you know, differing type of things. But how do you test for that? Yeah, those are different kinds of people. And so, I, you know, there's a variety of, uh, of tests that, you know, mostly academic things that have been out there that, that sort of look for those proclivities in people. And there was a variety. I mean, I remember sitting in a building in Northern Virginia as I was applying, you know, filling out, you know, little circles and, and tests and things. 
um, and going through a variety of interviews just to try to see if you had that ability to sort of operate in in the gray and and not need always you know a right and wrong answer to everything or if you had a proclivity for you know learning languages there's a variety of things it's a weird job the clandestine service because you, you need to have a you know a, a good spatial awareness on the street in case you're under surveillance and be able to sort of handle yourself you need to be able to make decisions and have judgment because you're often out on your own at the end of a long tether, maybe meeting a source with money or or given information that needs to be acted on immediately. And, you know, you you can't always ask for answers, what's right and what's wrong in this situation. So they're just looking for those type of, I don't know, attributes of different people to see where they, they best fit. I mean, it's not a determinative thing, but it, it's something that sort of helps both the applicant and the agency figure out what's the right place for someone. You've been deputy chief of station and chief of station all over the place, Europe, Southeast Asia, the Balkans, South Asia. Well, first of all, give us a little a, a basic education. What, what is a station? What is a CIA station? So interestingly, so every, every country ha, you know, has a, that where the U.S. has diplomatic relations, has an embassy run by an ambassador who's the president's personal representative to that country. And the ambassador and the embassy house a variety of different agencies, the State Department, political officers, economic officers, maybe the Commerce Department, people who give visas and immigration visas and things, and oftentimes military attaches and a variety of things. A station is just another word for the CIA office in a country. And so, you know, most countries have a you know, a, a CIA station, an office there, and the person who's in charge of that station is the station chief. And that person has to have a relationship with the, with the ambassador, but also is in charge of all intelligence community activities in that country. And that that is obviously CIA, but that also represents, you know, military intelligence, you know, FBI counterintelligence, and, and any other sort of, of, of the intelligence community that might have interest in things in that country. And then under that rubric, there are people who work that are declared to and are known to the local service. So if you're in Germany, you're going to they're going to be working with the Germans on everything from counterterrorism to counterproliferation to issues of, of mutual interests with the German internal security service and external security service. But they also may have people who are undercover um, who, who don't appear to be you know, or be known CIA officers. And so that's what a station is. And that's what a station chief is. How undercover were you a lot of the time? What, what does undercover mean? Take us away yeah. from the movies. Uh, I think we've seen the movies. We, we, we have sort of an image in our head. What, what is undercover in reality? How, how did you, how did you navigate it? Did you have that innate sense? Is that why they put you there? Or, or, or did you go through certain <laughs> training and there's certain boxes you check off and you say, okay, I'm, I'm now undercover. I imagine it's not that simple. Well, there may be something to the sort of innate ability to be comfortable in sort of a unusual situation like that and be able to be, you know, portray yourself as someone else if you have to. But there's sort of two ways to look at cover. And, and the, the official sort of terms you use are cover for status or cover for action. So status is what it is. What is your job? Why are you in a certain place? So if you're in said country overseas, you may be your cover is what your job is. And and if it's not, you know, if your cover is not, I'm a CIA officer, it could be anything else. An economic attache, a State Department officer, a variety of, you know, even a businessman could be 
something that is your cover. So that's, you know, your neighbors and people you deal with and people you meet know you as that, not as a CA officer. So CI officer is something you're protecting and hiding because you need that cover, that fake job to give you access to the things you need to get access to. And, and what, what would you say? I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, ja- I'm, I'm James. I work at the local bank. I mean, is, is, is it that? Well, for the that? most part, that's why it would make a difference in cover for status and cover for action. So your cover for status is, is the job that you have there, but it's going to be most, mostly you and your real name. And oftentimes you're with your family overseas. And so it's essentially just, you know, you may be coming out of the embassy like anybody else, but you're coming out as, you know, saying you're a State Department officer when in fact you're a CIA officer. And then the, the other one is cover for action. That's the one where you may use a, a false name. So if you're if you in a country, in an embassy, and you work for CIA, and you may get on a plane to go somewhere else to meet a source, you may have alias documents. You may, under a different name, um, with sort of fake things in your wallet to, to, to so that when you meet that source, they don't necessarily know where you work or what your name is. And that's sort of our, what we call cover for action. So that's more the stuff you see a little bit in movies where, you know, I'm not John Cipher. I'm, you know, in some different name and, and some different job. So the person doesn't have any, couldn't look me up or figure out who I am for real. You, you have a great name for a spy. Yeah, I don't like the name, but yeah, it's possible. But have you, you think that's why you were so successful? <laughs> <laughs> No, and I don't know how successful I was. There's a lot of talented people doing a variety of things around the world. Uh, I'm just uh, pleased to been involved with it and talk about it a little bit nowadays. Now, I don't know how successful you were either, by the way. <laughs> but I, I, I'm there you go. You, <laughs> you spent 28 years uh, do, doing what you, you've been describing. Uh, now you you seem to have a, an interest in uh, security issues. No surprise. You're also looking a lot at what's happening in this country. We're in fall 2020. We're coming up to an election. What do you look around and see that bothers you? Well, my main thing that I'm working on now is I have a company that's trying to work with Hollywood on espionage movies and shows. So I have a production company. So that's what I spend most of my time doing. But I also, you know, speak and write some on on the issues that are sort of facing us. And I think we're really in a, a unique time. That, you know, as you see, as the presidential presidential election is coming up, quite a large number of people who've worked in the national security space—military, military admirals and generals, um, intelligence officers—you know, a variety of people who actually worked in the Trump administration speaking out. And I think, I think that's unusual. I think most people are their comfort zone is to not talk about politics. You know, you mentioned I was almost thirty years in the organization, working very, very closely with with friends and, and colleagues around the world. And we never spoke about politics. We never spoke about what party we supported. It was it was a completely nonpartisan atmosphere. We were working on behalf of the American people in the mission of of collecting intelligence for policymakers. And so what it was troubling to us is the culture has seemed to change. We see this administration trying to use these very powerful institutions, whether it's the FBI or the Justice Department or CIA or or even the military sort of almost as political weapons. You know, the president seems to think that those organizations should work for him and should make comments and, and skew policy and, and skew intelligence to support his sort of personal political interests. And that's really, really troubling to people who saw themselves as professional, saw themselves as working for the American people in the Constitution, not as sort of partisan hacks. And so I think that's why we're seeing so many people speak up, myself included. What is the message that's sent 
when something as that sounds as basic as our duty, our mission is to protect the interests of the American people, when that message is politicized or 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 perverted. Well, you know, in in sort of in the intelligence community, you know, our intelligence agencies really sort of developed after World War II. Um, you know, having gone through the war, it was clear that we needed to, to, to create professional intelligence agencies. And sort of in the early years as they were developing, um, in many ways, they often were sort of personal weapons is the wrong term of, of presidents to be used around the world. And, you know, in those early days, you know, overthrowing governments in Iran and Guatemala and these type of things was something that presidents did without much oversight from Congress or involved involvement from from any place else in the in the government. Um, but over the years, there's been a lot of reforms, mostly in the 70s, that, that provided congressional oversight, um, started to professionalize these organizations so that they they you know did not work on behalf of you know just the president or just a specific political party. And by the time I came in and through most of my career, you know, and this is the same in the military and the same in the FBI and all these places is you know, these are professional organizations who are, who have, are held accountable by oversight to Congress and, you know, involved with the Justice Department and lawyers inside to make sure that we're following rules, regulations and laws and, and you know, are professionally trying to do what our specific agency can do to support the larger mission of national security. And so we see ourselves that way. And so when we see a president sort of turning it back so that these things become sort of politicized, we see that's really dangerous. And so something like the Office of Director of National Intelligence, and then we saw the Department of Homeland Security, these were created after 9-11 to try to create better communication and organization among you know, our national security institutions. But we never thought that they would be used almost as political tools. So, so this administration has put people in with no national security or intelligence experience, whose only job is to try to protect the president, and they're using those jobs to declassify information or to make comments that, that benefit the president. Um, but that actually hurts those powerful organizations. And those of us who took great pride in what we were, were doing, um, didn't always get it right, you know, but still took great pride in it, really upset about, about that development. I gather you're upset. I gather a lot of people are angry and, and frustrated. Is there a remedy we're careening towards the November election, stories that aren't even being covered, a lot of uh, uh, attacks that are coming from different areas domestically, internationally. Is there any remedy or is this thing just going to happen? Do you lose sleep overnight thinking about the election, thinking about January, December uh, and the winter? I, I do. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons, you know, I'm trying to write and talk and use whatever, you know, small uh, position I have I have to do so. I think one of the things that's really happened and it's sad in our country is we've become so tribal politically. And there's reasons why that might have happened over the years in terms of, you know, where we get our information and how and social media being able to put people in sort of their own bubbles that they don't see wider information is that and President Trump's the best example of this. If you think your enemy is are the Democrats, damaging the Democrats, no matter how you do it, is considered a good. Whereas, you know, most of the people now who are complaining about this, like myself, you know, our enemies are our enemies abroad. There are people trying to do damage to the United States. They're not our domestic political opponents. 
you know, Democrats and Republicans traditionally and should be, even though they often disagree with each other, on the same side. They want what's best for the United States. They're not they're not enemies to be destroyed. They're they're um, opponents to be you know worked with and compromised with. But and so now we got this thing where you know Republicans you know hate Democrats and Democrats hate Republicans and they see them as the enemy. And so cooperating with the Russians to defeat the Democrats. If, you know, if the, if the Democrats are the real enemies, then there's no reason not to cooperate with a foreign power. And, you know, those of us who who know what the Russians are up to and know what they're trying to do to our country, see that as, as you know, terrible. Is there a way to get away from the tribalism, do you think? Is there something we can do as ordinary Americans? What do you recommend? Wow. Yeah, now you're going to, way outside my lane, and I wish I had an answer for it. I think all of us do. Um, you know... You know, oversimplifying, but you know, as I grew up, there wasn't as much political news. You know, it was in the mid '90s where the Communications Act was changed, which allowed us to create national news like Fox News that was, you know, wholly in support of one, sort of one party or one sort of set of interests. And, it, and since you know, news, radio news, and, and television news had become almost like entertainment, and people sort of have gone into one of these sort of bubbles, they get a, a variety of information that, that continues to support their pre-existing sort of views on things. And, and it just gets stronger and stronger over time. And so I don't know. I mean, there is probably some legislation to look back at a point of how we can, you know, how we can get our information and what that information should be. And we're in a real tough position now. So social media, which is incredibly powerful now and has lots of benefits, also allows disinformation, misinformation, and malign actors to spread information. And, and we have a real problem. So whereas real information, good journalism, and, and serious journalists, you got to pay for that. If you want the New York Times, you got to pay for it. If you want, you know, The Economist, you got to pay for it. But social media is free. You can get on and, and just get whatever information is, happens to be sent your way. And there's a lot of bad actors who want to send information your way. Tom Nichols was on here recently, and he said the simplest thing he could think of was something you alluded to, which is people need to stop getting their news from Twitter and Facebook. Uh, I, I, I said, great, fat chance, but, but <laughs> it's, it sounded like good advice. Let's um, shift gears just briefly because it's called Talking Beats here. We always talk a little bit about music. Excellent. What does music do for you? You have to love it. Oh, of course. And, but, you know, I'm sort of embarrassed. I, I you know, I'd be interested to hear your experience from talking to different people. It's almost like my my musical taste and knowledge and, and education like stopped at a certain point. So like, I you know, if I, what's on my phone to listen to when I work out or you know, I'm listening by myself, it's sort of for my days in college and afterwards, but then maybe some period of time, like the late 90s, essentially it ended. And so, <laughs> <laughs> you know occasionally you'll hear some new music and you'll be like, wow, that's something. But, but uh, you know, I, I'm sort of embarrassed of how sort of old my knowledge is of, of music. Well, it's, it's nothing to be embarrassed about because it's, 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 I, I think it's one of the few things that hasn't been politicized yet. I'm hoping music, I think there are people out there even trying to politicize Beethoven, believe it or not. <laughs> but I'm fighting back against that. But, but I, I, I think, um, someone's taste is someone's taste. Uh, that's about it. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting to see how that market has changed over the years. I mean, 
you know, the, the internet, if you will, and the ability to sell music and Spotify and these type of things obviously changed the way music comes to us. Obviously, you know, there's, there's always classics and things out there you can get access to, but you know, the days when the Rolling Stones could put out an album and, and sort of own that music is, you know, it's long gone. What do you listen to what, what, after we're done talking here and, 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 and you have to clear your head from, from this, uh, from this conversation, what are you going to put on if you get on your bike or you go on a run or something? All right, I'm going to have to open up my music on my phone here. So, sure. So it, it tends to be, yeah, more old fashioned sort of rock and roll, Rolling Stones and, and everything, the animals and Beatles and old, old sort of stuff, Springsteen, that type of thing. And of course, you know, I, I like classical music when I'm relaxing, but, you know, I'm just looking through here, Cat Stevens and The Clash and some Coldplay and Elton John. And Coldplay, that, that's, that's not so old. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> There's some green there. Like when I was in uh, Jakarta, I was living in Jakarta, I had my family there. My kid, who was like, I don't know, how old was he then? 10, 12 or something. He was like a big fan of Green Day. And I didn't know anything about it. I'm like, what the heck is that? And they were playing in Singapore. So I said, oh, I'd take them to the concert. And I went to the concert and I was like, wow, this is really, this is really good. It reminded <laughs> me of sort of the early um, sort of punk music that, that I'd grown up with, everything from the, the Clash to the Ramones and stuff. But yeah, that, so that was one sort of newer one. That, that, what do you think of Singapore? Is that a place you like? Singapore is a, is a fascinating and interesting place. Yeah, it's sort of in, in that part of the world, too. It's, it has a different vibe. It's, you know, much of Southeast Asia, you know, are wonderful people, fascinating sort of landscapes, everything, you know, orangutans and volcanoes and all sorts of things happening. But oftentimes, you know, sort of infrastructure is a little, is a little weak. But it, Singapore, you know, maybe it's from the days being tied to the British or because of sort of the ethnic China, Chinese influence, you know, it's very well organized. It's sort of one of the few places in, in the hot Southeast Asia where, you know, there's, there's sidewalks everywhere to walk and it has that sort of infrastructure. Yeah. It's, it's a really interesting place. You know, it was, I don't know if you remember sort of the history is, is, is Malaya and Malaysia when the sort of British left had sort of a large ethnic Chinese um, you know, group of people and, the, the, the Malays wanted to be the sort of largest ethnic group and, and run their own country and sort of push the Chinese out and therefore cut Singapore off from the rest of what became Malaysia. And, you know, at the time it was a very poor place, but what happened over the years is it's become one of the richest and, and you know, sort of most tightly run places in the world. So, yeah, it's a fascinating place. Yes, rich and tightly run. I, I was there for for I think there were maybe three and a half days. It was a it was a very quick trip. <laughs> Last September, September 2019, I I flew to Singapore to perform at the Patek Philippe Grand Exhibition, wow. uh, which was held at the Raffles Hotel, uh, which had just been reopened. Um, Did in, you get a Singapore sling? No, the line was too long. Oh, okay, right. really? Because they, they they only serve it in that one in the long bar. The bar, I, yeah. I went to other bars at at the Raffles Hotel asking for the drink. They said, no, we can't make it. I said, I know you have the ingredients, right? <laughs> they said, well, maybe, but you can only get it at the long bar. So, <laughs> so the, the best I did was get one of the special glasses for the Singapore Sling, and I brought it home to the States with me, and I told myself I'd make one for my, myself in the glass here at home. 
second best thing. And we uh, Moshe Safdi, who designed the Marina Bay Sands, among uh, also the airport, the Changi Airport, and many other things, was was on this podcast recently. Uh, and he is doing a fourth tower for the Marina Bay Sands, which because it's not big enough. <laughs> yeah, for anybody who hasn't seen it, it's that sort of incredible hotel with a series of towers with a almost like looks like a boat over the top of it with swimming pools and bars and things. It's something else. Yeah, the world's highest infinity pool, right? <laughs> Jeez. I haven't actually been up there. It's as incredible as you think because you you're in the pool, you you're literally at the top of skyscrapers. So so you're you're looking out, you're in this infinity pool looking out. Uh you don't feel like you can fall off the building, but it's pretty incredible. Yeah, but the pictures you know look like someone's gonna fall off. So yeah, it gives you that sense. <laughs> you you mentioned a word before that that is sort of a, a buzzword. You mentioned the word accountable. Accountability. Mm-hmm. This is a word we hear a lot. Ordinary Americans wonder about accountability. They wonder who holds Organization X accountable. What should we think about who is holding the CIA accountable? Is Congress holding them accountable? Is it up to the American people to ask more? Is it up to journalists to dig more? How much do we have the right to know? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I would say for the most part, Americans can be pretty comfortable that what our institutions are doing in our name are pretty serious about it, pretty professional. And for the most part, you know, whenever we would take, get involved in an operation or do something, we would often just use the practical sense of what, what would it look like to our mothers if this showed up on the front page of the Washington Post? So the question is, if we're involved in, in, in something, what is just the basic ethics and morals of what we're doing? Is, is this something that's right, that the American public would understand? But then more sort of in a bureaucratic sense, you know, we have a variety of rules, regulations, and lawyers inside that, that work with us and are tied in with the Justice Department to make sure that everything we're doing is sort of legal and sensible and and uh, accountable. And then, of course, there's congressional oversight. And so responding to Congress, the congressional staffs, they're very much in our buildings talking to us. You know, every, every sort of CIA person, if they've had any time inside this been involved in briefing briefing Congress when we're overseas. Congressional visitors come all the time, and we make sure to to take them around to meet, you know, show them to our contacts, to brief them on what we're up to, um, meet meet the ambassador, to, so they understand that we are, you know, the, the embassy team, if you will, the CIA, State Department, others are all sort of working in the in the in the same direction. But in terms of the American people, I think it's really interesting, and it wasn't as much until, say, when General Hayden came to be the CIA director. He was an Air Force officer. He'd been the head of the NSA before. And when he came in, he said, listen, we do have somewhat of a public role. In the past, CIA very much you know, didn't want to talk to the public, didn't want to have sort of a public affairs. People who retired were sort of encouraged to stay silent and not talk to the press. He really changed that culture. And he said, listen, you know, we do have a responsibility to the American people. We certainly can't engage them and, and tell them our, our secrets, but we can, to the extent allowable, give them a sense of what we're doing and what we're trying to do so that they have a sense of what we're doing in their name. And so he would you know, he would often give speeches and, and write op-eds and, and those type of things. And then from his time period, people like me, when they retired, we were allowed to what we call roll back our cover and then you know, speak to the public or write to the public. So now I write sometimes in the New York Times or Washington Post or Atlantic or what have you, you know, 
things that, that I believe, all of the things that I, I write are sent through the agency's publications review board to make sure that there's nothing classified in them. But in terms of opinions, you know, I have a First Amendment right like anybody else. And so even if I might write something that might upset the administration or might upset the CIA, that really doesn't matter. That's that's fine as long as I'm not sharing classified or sensitive information. You mentioned the word morality. And I think a lot of people wonder about morality as they look at part of the record of Gina Haspel, for example. What what do you think people are supposed to think? How, how do we square the circle of of trusting you when you talk about the decency, the morality, the idea, okay, if my mom is going to look at the front page and here I am having spent 25 years uh, torturing political prisoners, what, what do you, how do you square that circle with, with Gina Haspel and her record of being involved potentially in torture? Well, that's actually a, a good, you know, a sad but a good example is, you know, at some point the things that the CIA and others are, are involved in are going to come out and you need to think about whether you can justify and live with the things that you've been involved with. And so, you know, after 9-11, there was this obviously small program to interrogate uh, Al-Qaeda prisoners who had been caught and try to you know, find intelligence from them. And, and that has become, that program has now been determined, you know, some of the pieces of that program to have been torture. And uh, I think it's pretty well accepted now. And the agency and, and the U.S. government has decided they're not going to take, you know, use any of those uh, techniques anymore. And that, I, you know, I support that and I think that's fine. But at the, at the time, you know, people forget. And in fact, that's part of the problem being in an agency that's sort of at the cutting edge, right? The edge in his, of doing things on behalf of our national security is after 9-11, there was such fear and, and worry about what is, the, what is the next phase of this? What is the next thing that the terrorists might do that as we started to catch terrorists around the world, um, there was pressure from the people now who are often saying that this is torture and we shouldn't have done it. You know, I can remember Congress, when they originally saw the the program that is now called torture, the, the enhanced interrogation program, there was a number of senior senators and other people that said, this is it. This is all. You need to be doing more. There was actually pressure to to, to, to push more. I can remember even and then from the White House and the Justice Department saying, you know, CIA is actually being too timid. We're not we're not taking this seriously enough. And of course, times change. And when, you know, when people are scared, they might go, they might step too far. And when people are no longer scared, they look back and they are, are critical of the things that they might have agreed to before. And CIA is the organization that's sort of at the forefront of this. And, and so we, we run into these, these problems. And so something that, you know, otherwise sensible people thought was okay at one time, those same sensible people or others, you know, when they're feeling safe, look back upon it and say, uh, hey, that's that's too far. And I think that's, that's okay. We have to go through those things. We have to go through those discussions and, and what happens. And, and what part of the problem is it becomes, when it gets out of sort of the government things, it becomes politicized and, you know, both sides sort of pick up on it to use it as sort of political weapons against the other. And so, you know, I know Gina. I've worked with Gina. I've replaced her in certain jobs and stuff. Um, she didn't have 25 years of torturing people. She was involved, you know, for six months at a program part of that thing where, where people were, were uh, waterboarded, but you know, it wasn't like her career was based on interrogating people. And that's part of the problem is after 9-11, there was no, but there was no right answer. As we captured terrorists, when we captured them overseas, the place where we captured them said, well, you know, we don't want them. You need to get them out of here. 
and we went to send them back to the states. And Congress immediately passed a law and said none of these people can come to the states. And so, and so CIA was sort of stuck with these people, and they went to the Defense Department and said, "Listen, you know, we're we're spies and analysts. We don't do interrogations. This isn't our work. We don't. We're not jailers." And the Defense Department under Rumsfeld quickly said, "Hey, you know, this, we don't want anything to do with this." And so CIA, in a certain sense, got stuck with the problem. What you know, what is the right answer if you've captured someone who is involved in killing thousands of Americans? and cutting people's heads off and such. And you can't keep them in the country they're in. You can't send them to the United States. The people who are that are trained to be interrogators and such are unwilling to do it. What do you do in a time of pressure and you have to do something quickly? They created this sort of program to try to be to try to deal with it. And you know, there was it didn't it didn't work well in the, in the, you know looking at it in the long run. So you know I think it's something that I think it's good and healthy for our country to dig into that, look at those things, decide you know what it is that we'll support and what it is we we won't support. But yeah, I mean, sort of that's part of the problem of working in an organization that, that you know when a new threat comes up, they say, okay, we don't have any idea how to deal with this, but you're in charge of it. Go. Enhanced interrogation techniques is that ever a good route to go down? Is it ever a beneficial route? You know, I don't know. I I didn't do that. I was working on other issues. Um, but the, the one thing I want to make clear is, is the CIA is built to do the opposite. Our job is to, for the most part, is to deal with people, befriend them, develop trust, develop relationships. You know, there's, you know, there's a lot of people who, who aren't stuck with these problems that say, oh, my God, you know, this is the whenever you have to deal with this, there's, you know, you should try to befriend them and, and do these things. I, I think that's essentially what the agency does and did try to do. But there's a few you know, in the criminal world, in the terrorist world, there's a few recalcitrant people who that doesn't work for. And, and what is what do you do, you know, when that happens? What if you have access to someone like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who is the mastermind of 9-11, who you have video of sawing with a dull blade the head off of Dan Pearl, and you have you have him. And, you know, as you're flying him off after you've captured him, he, he says, you know, there, there's more to come. And I'm not going to say a word until I get my lawyer. Know, a foreign person. What's the right way to deal with that? I don't still don't know if we have the right answer. You're not going to befriend him and get an answer if you, you know, that we we weren't allowed to put him in the U.S. judicial system. And and if that person had knowledge of the next wave of attacks and people worried about nuclear attacks and all kinds of things, if that happens, and we did not try to get information from him, the American people and others would would rightly say, isn't that your job to be, you know, as you deal with these people to find this information? Why did you not try other, you know, means? And so I agree. I don't think torture is is absolutely the first thing. I don't think it's something we should ever try to do. I do think the waterboarding is torture. I think the other pieces of that program are still debatable, and I don't believe they're torture. And it is true that CIA did waterboard three people, but those people also you know, had a lot of American blood on their hands. And so I think we're in the right place. We've decided that's wrong and we're not going to do that. And I think that's where we, we need to be. But but the people who went through that also know that, you know, the process was more difficult than, it, you know, it's not as simple as we discuss it today. You know, it's very easy and you hear from a lot of Americans, oh, you know, we're the greatest country. Everything's wonderful. For someone who's lived and traveled overseas, you know, there's a lot of things that we think we're the best at and we're not necessarily the best at it. You know, I, and there's a lot of places in the country where 
people don't live better in the United States than they do in some of these other places. And so I think it's, you know, we're really at a time where we need to think about, are we what we want to be as a country? Are we taking care of our people? Are, you know, can we learn from other places? And so I'm, I'm optimistic if, you know, that if the, if the election goes to the Democrats, I think there's a lot of fixing and, and positive things that can take place. For me, I really enjoy the creativity of working on, you know, make, on content and making films and shows and working with really, really smart writers and people in, in Hollywood. You know, we, we option a number of books of old spy stories and then work with Hollywood writers to try to bring them to the screen. I really enjoy that because it's just so it's so different from the work I did before. And, you know, I got a great family and following them and figuring out what my kids are up to and stuff that keeps me happy. So I'm I'm an optimistic person by nature. And you have a dog. Yes. Well, I had two dogs and one of them died a few months ago. The old one is a great boy, Australian Shepherd. And then we have a younger one that we got a few years ago, maybe three years old. He's one blue eye and one brown eye. Pretty girl. Well, I hope you you enjoy the the fall with your dog, with your family, uh, and I hope you come back because there's a lot more to talk about. Oh, we're not running out of content, that's for sure. Well, I'm going to have to sort of go through my uh, my musical taste so it can uh, sound a little more educated than I did this time. You you sounded educated enough, <laughs> uh, <laughs> John Cipher. I thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Really enjoyed talking to you. You've been listening to Talking Beats with Daniel Lalchuk. I hope you'll subscribe and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. The original theme music for this program is by Ronald Markham. The content coordinator is Nathaniel Mosse. Doug Christian is the executive producer. I'm Daniel Lalchuk. See you next time.